Good to be with you guys this morning. Thank you for checking out your bulletin and all of those upcoming events and announcements. We are on our very last week in our Thessalonians series, First Thessalonians, Faith in the Gospel. Uh, this fall, we've been reading that letter written kind of in a first-person uh, uh, plural, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, sending the letter written primarily by Timothy to those Christians. Um, we've seen their faith in the gospel. They've been transformed through their faith in Jesus, and their faith is ringing out, ringing out as an example to the whole region. And it's been an example to us as we've read this letter. Um, we've seen... Not only their faith in Christ, but our call, our call to walk as men and women of faith. We've been exhorted to share the gospel, to share the gospel, not only in word, but to share our very lives, to share our very lives. And so we've been encouraged to walk in a way that pleases God, to live as children of the day. You remember that children of the light, investing in one another, loving one another. And we've been invest, directed to look to the return of Christ. That's been our hope this fall, that Christ is coming and our motivation Let's try this out and see if it'll work for us. Um, Give me just one quick second and see if I can... Quick quick mic change here. Um, So, how many of you have been encouraged by our study in 1 Thessalonians? Show of hands. Got something out of it? Yes. Studying it in our life groups as well, which has been super encouraging, hopefully, to study it. Um, throughout the week to grow in your understanding and your personal application. We saw last week kind of the final section of First Thessalonians as Paul began to give instructions um, to the church, kind of the closing of his letter. And he talked about how we need to respect those who lead among us. He talked about admonishing the idle, encouraging the faint-hearted, helping the weak, and then being patient with all. Remember that call, the Christian call to patience, for everyone. And so we're going to continue that last section as Paul, where were we? First Thessalonians chapter five. Um, so Paul's continuing his closing section, kind of given those practical exhortations, those reminders. We're going to read this morning over a dozen different reminders. Um, Paul's kind of going rapid fire, you know, like when you're, you're walking out um, and you're leaving for the evening with your kids at home and you're sort of rapid fire, like giving them those last minute instructions as you go out the door and, and you're like, you know, be good, have fun, do your homework, clean up the kitchen. I love you. Oh, don't forget to take out the trash. Like that's the section that Paul's in right now. He's giving everything that he, he didn't say in the rest of the letter, kind of rapid fire. Here's what it means to live the Christian life. And, um, in the midst of these instructions that we're going to read here, you can open up if you haven't done so already, to 1 Thessalonians 5. In the midst of all these instructions, it might seem like a lot. It might seem overwhelming, like how am I possibly going to do all of that? But thankfully, it's all grounded in this, this one enormous comforting promise that He is faithful. In the midst of all that God has asked us to do, He is faithful and He will surely do it. So let's pray and read together. We're going to pick up in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 15, and read the end of this book of the Bible. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would give us grace, um, regardless of which microphone I have to use. Lord, I pray that, that we could have focus and concentration this morning, God, that we could hear from you and from your spirit. God, I pray that as we read the word, Lord, that your spirit would stir among us and give us grace to hear from you. Give us encouragement, challenge us, 
Equip us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Word of God says this. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And everybody said, Abstain from every form of evil. Now you might say, well, how can I possibly live this way, right? Like, is there no margin for error? How about most of the time? How about on, on good days? I can't always do any of these things, you might say, let alone always do all the things mentioned. But again, not only does this passage call us to action, it supports us with God's promise that He is faithful. And so before we jump into the call of God on our lives today, I actually want to begin at the, at the end there in verse 23, what you might call the benediction, right? This, this closing blessing. He says there in verse 23, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. We read earlier from Isaiah, our hope to the child that was given to us is, is that one day, This Prince of Peace will come again. The one that was born for us that now resides in our heart. This Prince of Peace. And so Paul prays there that the God of Peace would sanctify us completely. Our God is a God of Peace. Peace in in Himself. He brings peace. He brings peace to us. He has given us peace. That's what we celebrate as Christians, whether it's Christmas or any time of the year, that the Prince of Peace came and brought peace into our hearts. He reconciled us back to, to our Father. See, every human that's ever lived is meant to live in relationship, in covenant relationship with their God, but that peace has been broken because of our re- rebellion and our heartedness and disinterest in God. We've turned from Him, but Christ came to restore that peace. And so we cry out to the God of peace that He would sanctify, that He would make us holy. In the midst of all the instructions that we've been given here in this passage, we find that God is committed to our holiness. To sanctify you completely. To sanctify is to make someone holy. To set them apart. To make them like God, pure. And so the the prayer, the blessing, the expectation of verse 23 is that you will be sanctified. Your entire person, your whole spirit and soul and body will be preserved blameless. To see, despite your own failures, the promise of Christ is that you will be preserved blameless all the way until the coming of Jesus. By the grace of God, He will form you. Christian, He will form you more and more into His image to be without blame when the Lord comes. We heard this same sentiment in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians. Paul prayed similarly there that the Lord would establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. See, our hope is that one day we'll stand before God, stand before God with confidence, because in the midst of our sin and and faults and failures and selfishness, we can stand before God blameless. 
stand before God pure and holy. We can escape His judgment, not because we always got it right, but because our Savior Jesus always got it right. We stand on the perfect record of Christ, and so now we can be blameless. Blameless before God. See, our holiness rests in God's faithfulness. Amen? God is faithful. Verse 24 says that he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. God, the one who called you, who called you out of darkness into light, who called you out of sin into obedience, the one who called you out of death into life with him, the same God that called you, that started you on this journey, he is faithful and he will finish what he started. Can you hang on to that this morning? See, he doesn't call you from death into life and then ask you to sort of follow him Follow Him on on your own. He forgave you and He brought you to Himself to make you holy just as He is holy. And the one who calls you is faithful. And He's faithful to stay with you. See, listen up. God does not get distracted. God does not lose interest in the work in your life. He doesn't forget the promises that He made to you. God doesn't get tired. He doesn't get weary. He doesn't get worn out. And you may not always be faithful. You may not always stay interested in Him. You may not always have what it takes. You may not always work hard, but God is always faithful. Amen? He always finishes what He started. And so as we jump into the the, the instructions and 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 the guidance in this passage, we rest in the promise that God will surely do what He's called us to do. Paul said it this way in first or excuse me, in, in Philippians 1.6, Paul said, I'm sure of this. I am sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. I'm sure of it. He's going to do it. He's going to complete the work to make you into the image of Christ so that you could be blameless. And so because of that, we should not be intimidated by the commandments that we read this morning. Even the places where it says always The first one there in verse 15, jumping back up to where we started reading. Verse 15, always do good. Make sure that you don't repay evil for evil, it says there. See, when someone sins against you or they hurt you, or someone offends you, someone takes from you, our instinct often is to return, right? To to return the favor, to return the cursing, to lash out at them. Isn't that our instinct often time? To repay evil for evil? I was picking up one of my kids up at the, the high school this week. And, you know, if you've been up to the, the campus, three different schools and different traffic patterns and stop signs and intersections. And so I'm pulling out of the middle school and there was a stop sign. But to be honest, I slowed down a little bit and, uh, you know, went to make my, my left turn. And it, the stop sign, by the way, it did have the white border around it, which I was always told meant it's optional. But... Um, so, but as I'm coming, there's an older gentleman driving toward me, and honestly, I just didn't see him, and I cut him off. And, but here's the thing, even though I was wrong, as we're kind of passing through the intersection, we made eye contact, you ever do that? We made eye contact, and th- this older gentleman, probably old enough, you know, to be my, my, my grandfather, he, he looks at me, and he wags his finger at me. <laughs> now, you all chuckle, but I was infuriated, right? Like, if the guy had hit me, I would have been fine. Okay, if he had honked at me, I would have been fine. If he had flipped me the bird, I would have been fine. But but the fact that he treated me like a little toddler and he wagged his finger, I was infuriated. Like I literally wanted to repay him and to follow him, find out I wasn't going to physically hurt him. But I was like thinking, like, look, man, 
I'm a 45-year-old adult. Don't wag your finger at me. You got a problem. Like, you know, deal with it like a man, right? But I didn't repay evil for evil. Instead, I just drove home and, you know, got over it. But that's our instinct, isn't it? When we've been mistreated or when we feel that we've been mistreated. But what does it say? Instead, Christians should always seek or always strive to do good. Instead of repaying evil for evil, always do good. To one another, it says, that means fellow Christians, brothers and sisters in the church, and to everyone. That means all the people that you interact with, both inside and outside the church, always strive to do good. Jesus said to love your enemies. Love those that have hurt you, that have offended you. See, doing good to your enemies means that you give blessing when you are cursed. It means that you are loving even in the face of hostility. It means that you show kindness in response to criticism. It means that you're helpful to others even when you feel neglected by them. It means that you are generous to others, even those that might be hurting you. Do good to to one another and to everyone. And and by the way, Paul doesn't address this because he couldn't. But that means everyone in the physical world and everyone in the online world, right? We don't have special permission to mistreat people in social media in a way that we would never speak to people or interact with people online. And so we do this in every aspect of life. As verse 22 says, stay away from every form of evil. Always do good. In, in Peter's letter, Peter writes this in 1 Peter 3.8. He says, finally... All of you be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another and be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing since you were called for this so that you may inherit a blessing. Now you say, okay, great. The Word of God says to always do good. How am I possibly going to do this? How am I also possibly going to do good in my home, in the church, and in the community Well, we we rest and we return back to that promise. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And so yes, throw up your hands. Yes, say this is overwhelming. And then remember, he who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. He will empower you day by day to grow in grace to live out each and every one of these callings. Look Look at the next one in verse 16. Always rejoice. See, joy is to be the mark of the Christian life. In fact, even in the face of hardship and suffering and turmoil, the New Testament again and again tells us to rejoice, rejoice even in suffering. Now listen, that does not mean be glib or superficial. That does not mean Christians walk around saying, yeah, everything's great. No, there's pain, there's struggle, there's hardship. But it means that no matter what's going on in your circumstances, Christians always have a reason to be joyful. Now we don't work up joy. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Not our work. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It grows out of the Spirit's work in your heart. Because when you confess Christ as your Savior, when you fall down and say, I can't do it anymore, God, I need your help, and you trust Jesus to forgive you, the Holy Spirit fills you with new life. And you're born again to a life of obedience, a life full of joy. And so you can rejoice always, even when there's pain. We saw in chapter 1 that the Thessalonians came to faith in the midst of much affliction, yet Paul says that they came with joy of the Holy Spirit. Again, joy doesn't come from your circumstances, doesn't come from the state of things going on around you, it comes from your state before God, your standing before God. And there's always a reason for joy if you know your Father. 
if you know the hope of Christ, if the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. And so you can rejoice always. Verse 17 says, pray without ceasing. That means pray always, continually, constantly. Now listen, prayer is not so much something you do as as who you are. One commentator said that it's a mental attitude of prayerfulness. Continual personal fellowship with God and consciousness of being in His presence throughout the day. See, prayer ultimately should be like breathing. We, we don't typically, unless you're having a panic attack or something, or you're exercising really hard, you don't think about breathing. You just breathe. You don't decide, well, this is the time of day where I'm going to stop and breathe. See, constant breathing is just what keeps you alive, physically. Even when your lips aren't moving, friends, your heart should be in a state of prayer. It's what keeps you alive, that state of continual mindfulness of God's presence, fellowship with Him, consciousness that He is in your life. Pray always without ceasing. It says in verse 18, give thanks in every circumstance. Always give thanks. No matter what's going on, there's something to be thankful for, right? And so we just celebrated Thanksgiving. Some of you guys know, I've I've written about it before, that we have this tradition in, in our home and my parents with my brother and sister and all of our kids that after Thanksgiving dinner, while we're letting things digest, trying to make some room for the pie, we, we all pass around a little slip of paper and we write something on it that we're thankful for. Then we put it in a hat or a bowl and then we pass the bowl around the table and you pull out somebody else's paper and you read it and then you try to guess who, who said that, right? What they were thankful for. It's a fun little game. But it's an opportunity for us as a family to, to give thanks. But but we don't need a special holiday. We don't need a gathering together. We don't need a tradition to give thanks. Christians are called to thankfulness. Just as joy should be a mark of the Christian life, so should thankfulness be a mark of men and women that have been called to follow Christ. And yet instead, we often give in to grumbling and criticizing and complaining. Complaining is the enemy of thankfulness. And the best way to overcome the enemy of thankfulness is to give thanks. And watch as as the criticism and the complaining and the grumbling fades away. And verse 18 says, all of this, I believe the joy, the prayer, the thanksgiving, all of this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ through faith, God's will is for you to be a person of prayer, a person of joy, a person of thanksgiving. Now for some of you, those things come, come difficult. Some of us struggle with discouragement, even depression. And those that, that experience depression are usually empty of joy. Prayer is hard. You struggle with prayer. You find being thankful difficult. See, de- to be depressed means you're, you're being pushed down. Depression is, is to be pushed down. And so we need to cry out to God to lift us up. To lift us up to be people of joy and prayer and thankfulness. Now again, you may say, how can, I, how can I always rejoice and always be in prayer and always give thanks? It's too overwhelming. It's too difficult. Life is too hard. God, how about if I do it 20 minutes a day? Is that enough? Friends, he who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but day by day you are growing. You will grow into the image of Christ and the promise is that when Jesus returns, you will stand before him blameless. Because of his work in you. He who calls you is faithful. Look now at verse 19. We're called to always give space for the Spirit. That's how I summarize this section. 
says in verse 19, don't quench the spirit. The opposite of quenching the spirit is giving space to the spirit. See, this idea there of quenching is like the idea of extinguishing fire. The Holy Spirit is often in Scripture associated with fire. He's like a flame, the fire of God on earth, bringing the light of God, the hope of God, bringing the heat of God to the world. And and I, I confess, um, since I was too young to be doing so, I've loved making fires. I have a little bit of a pyro streak in me. It was with great joy that I found out that when I did um, a work crew at Young Life Camp at Lake Champion my junior year, that one of our responsibilities was going to be to build the weekly bonfire. They still do this. And so throughout the week, as we were cleaning up the camp and getting brush and, 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 and limbs that had fallen and trash and anything that we thought would burn, we would pile it up onto the burn pile that at the end of the week would be lit for the campers. And on most weeks, we'd have you know a teepee built 10, I remember one week, at least 15 feet high. And then we'd light that sucker with kerosene. The flames would go up another 10 feet into the air, right? You'd have a, a 25 foot fire. You literally couldn't get within 30 feet of that thing and it'd be still be burning the next morning. And I loved it. My father taught me there are three things you need to make a fire. Some of you know what they are. You need a spark, you need fuel, and you need what? Oxygen. That's right. Now, if a fire is going to go out, it means one of those three things have been affected. Now, the spark only is really needed to get it going. But if you take fuel away from a fire, right, if the, if the fuel burns up and there's nothing more to burn, the fire will go out. Or if you smother the fire, right, you can smother it with, with water, you can smother it with a blanket. But if you smother a fire and restrict its oxygen, it will go out. Now, listen, we cannot ever extinguish the Holy Spirit himself. That's not what this is saying. But we can stifle His work. We can suppress His presence in our life. We can smother or restrain His active ministry in our hearts. We can seek to restrict His work. We can try to keep Him in check. Holy Spirit, I will follow you in these areas, but, but not in this area. And, and I'm willing to, to go this distance, but, but not all the way. Let's not get carried away. And so we restrict, we smother, we, we try to stifle the work of the Holy Spirit. So we're told, don't quench the Spirit. Positive translation is, always give space so that there's room for the oxygen to come in, you might say. For the Holy Spirit to burn in your heart. Not to smother Him or hold Him back or, or try to hinder the importance of the Holy Spirit or, or, or stifle the power of the Holy Spirit or restrict the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your heart. See, we, we want to maintain some degree of control and autonomy in our own lives. And yes, we surrender to God. And yes, we ask for forgiveness. And yes, we call Him Lord and Savior. But fully submitting to the Holy Spirit, I mean, that that's like giving over complete ownership of our thoughts, of our time, of our energy. Walking in obedience all of the time. But we're called to give Him space so that the fire of God has plenty of oxygen to burn in your life. What is the work of the Holy Spirit? I could summarize the work of the Holy Spirit in these four four categories. First is that the Spirit of God regenerates. Bring, he brings things to life. And the first way that He does that is by convicting us of sin. And then He draws us to God the Father. And then He grants us faith, bringing us to life. And after the Holy Spirit of God regenerates your heart and brings you to new life, the, the Holy Spirit sustains you. How does He sustain us? He purifies our hearts. He upholds the faith that He has birthed in us. And He assures us of our salvation. It's the Holy Spirit of God 
that sustains our faith and assures us of our salvation. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit reveals. He is the the person of God that is constantly revealing and manifesting God's presence to us. The one that is teaching us truth is the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. The one guiding your life is the Holy Spirit revealing His will to you. And, and, and then fourthly, you could say the Holy Spirit empowers. The work of the Holy Spirit is to empower. He, he lifts up our prayers to God. He equips us with spiritual gifts to, to walk in active, fruitful ministry. He unifies us as believers. He empowers us to work together. The Holy Spirit of God regenerates and sustains and reveals and empowers us. Why would we want to stifle Him? Why would we want to hinder Him or seek to extinguish His work? Some of you say, well, I'll tell you why. Because He makes me uncomfortable. And the Holy Spirit of God is always encouraging people to do radical things or to do hard things. The Holy Spirit is telling me to go forgive my spouse after after he or she has hurt me. The Holy Spirit of God is convicting me not to do the things that my friends on on my team are doing. I don't like the Holy Spirit because he's uncomfortable and he makes me do hard things. Friends, there's no doubt about it. This fire analogy... Fire is dangerous. Fire is powerful. Fire can easily get out of control. And some of you feel that way about giving the Holy Spirit unrestricted rule in your life. But man, fire can also bring warmth on a chilly day to a cold house. And fire can also cook a nutritious meal to feed you and sustain you. Welcome embrace the Holy Spirit. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Specifically, in, in the Thessalonican church, it seems that they were quenching the Spirit by, by disapproving of prophecy. It says in verse 20, we're not to despise prophecies. To despise something means you look down on it. You look at it with contempt or disdain. You, dis, you disapprove of prophecy. You, you disrespect prophetic words that are given by other Christians. Instead, we're called to the opposite of, of Despising prophecy would be to respect prophecy, to to honor prophetic words given by the stirring of the Holy Spirit. We do believe that the gift of prophecy, rightly understood within the bounds of Scripture, is active in the church today. I wrote a blog some time ago called The Gift of Prophecy Today. I encourage you to, to look that up on our website. If you say, well, prophecy, what does that mean? What, is, what does Pastor Tim and the church elders believe about that? I say in that blog that prophecy is the spirit-filled ability to share a revelation, something that God reveals to you. He brings it to your mind or He lays it on your heart for the purpose of building up and encouraging someone else. It's something that God puts on your heart for you to encourage and build up somebody else. 1 Corinthians 14, the Word of God explains prophecy like this. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So prophecy is a good thing. This is the Spirit of God at work, burning in our hearts, encouraging one another. Consider what happens if we were to look with contempt upon this beautiful gift of prophecy and this work of the Holy Spirit. It's supposed to encourage and build up and console one another. Think of all that would be missing if we were to quench the Spirit's work in this way. What a detriment. God, over the years, has it at times, I've often been the recipient of a prophetic word, and at times God stirred me to, to speak 
with prophetic encouragement, with the spirit-filled words to somebody else. The first vivid time I remember this happening was over 20 years ago. I'm going to tell you the first time and the last time. Over 20 years ago, I'm driving back from Philadelphia on the Blue Route through traffic, coming back from, from uh, seminary, and out of nowhere, the Lord brings to my mind a dream that I had had the night before. And I began to think about this dream and pray over it and meditate over it. God began to fill in details and remind me of things in a very vivid way. And it became evident to me that God was speaking to me through this prophetic dream. I didn't know who was who was supposed to be for. But, but then the Spirit reminded me that my wife at the time was leading a Bible study. I don't know if you even remember this. I meant to ask you. Was leading a Bible study at our her, her apartment on Main Street with uh, some younger high school, college-age girls. And I drove to that apartment. I knocked on the door. I said, honey, can I come in for a minute? I know you're just getting started with your study. And I sat down with this room full of, of young girls that I didn't know, and I shared this dream. And it was, about, it was about a father and a daughter. And I just shared the dream, and I left. And Karen told me later that one of the girls broke down, and she said that that, that was exactly what's going on with me and my dad. And the Holy Spirit spoke powerfully, encouraged and consoled and comforted this young girl through... Through, through the work of the Spirit. Then I'll tell you about something that happened last week. Last week, the Lord woke me up in the middle of the night, or I woke up, and then He spoke to me. I don't know which came first. But He put on my heart a man whom I had maybe met once or twice, barely knew. Now, I have to tell you, I, I liked it a lot better when God would speak to me through dreams, because then I could stay asleep. But now, as a middle-aged man, I wake up in the middle of the night, and God puts things on my heart. And, and he began to put this man on my heart, and he began to give me specific words of encouragement and, and specific specific things that, that, that this man needed to hear. And so the next Sunday at church, despite my best attempt to resist the Holy Spirit, whoever was giving the closing benediction said amen, and I made a beeline for this person because I knew if I didn't talk to them before they left, I'd probably chicken out and not do it. And I began to speak this word of encouragement that the Spirit had stirred in my heart. Friends, let's not quench the Holy Spirit. Let's not despise the prophetic work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now listen, being open to the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that you just accept any and everything and get and get wacky just because somebody said it's from God. Well, it must be true. No, what does verse 21 say? Test everything. Test everything carefully and only hold on to what is good, what is truly from God. Verse 22 says, stay away from every form of evil. Now again, if you, if you want to check out that blog or read 1 Corinthians 14, there's specific instructions given for when prophecy is, is given in a public worship service. It's to be judged. It's to be weighed by other prophetic leaders. It's to be tested. In 1 John, we're told that we need to test prophecy based on whether or not the prophet confesses the true gospel. If the, if the supposed prophet doesn't truly believe in Christ and the biblical gospel, he's not speaking for God. See, none of these prophetic encouragements are infallible only god's word is infallible they don't carry the authority of god's word and so they need to be evaluated according to the standard of god's word some of you have experienced that that stirring that that sense that that maybe god wanted to call you to give maybe a hard word or or a word of comfort into someone's life how do you sort of test even before you give a word? Is this really from God? Is God really calling me to, to say this, to do this? A couple of things I ask myself if I feel stirred. One thing is, is a, did it come from my own mind? See, if I have a thought, or if you have something that comes to your mind or comes to your heart, where did it come from? If you're responding to something that somebody was complaining about to you earlier that day, 
and you feel called to, to go address it with them, that may not be prophetic encouragement. It might just be regular encouragement, right? Because it sort of came from a direct interaction. Now, it might still be worth going to that brother and saying, hey, you were complaining about this early. But often, if something spontaneously comes to my mind, or if someone that I may not have talked to for, for weeks and weeks spontaneously comes to my mind, and I have the inner sense that it's something that they need to hear, it's unrelated to conversation or interaction, sometimes completely unrelated to anything I even know about them. That's often an indication that it didn't come from me, it came from the Lord. Secondly, oftentimes, you just have to ask yourself, is it, is it going away, Right? So I find that if I try to ignore something, if I try to ignore a word and it doesn't go away, it's often the Spirit of God, right? You say, well, how long do I have to wait? I, I don't know. Not going away could be a day, could be a month, could just be 15 minutes. But if, if that nagging, nagging in a good way, if that nagging of the Holy Spirit won't let you drop it and you just know, I, I need to go speak this to this person in love, to encourage them if it's not going to go away. See, God is persistent. And so if I think of something that seems like a good idea, I'm liable to forget about it five minutes later. But if the Holy Spirit thought of something that's a good idea and he's calling me to encourage someone, he is persistent. And, and then thirdly, most importantly, does it sound like God? Does what you have to say represent the heart of God, the voice of God? Ultimately, can that prophecy hold up to the test of Scripture? Is what you're encouraging them with biblical? Is it an application or an illumination of something that God has already revealed in Scripture? Because we know He's not going to reveal anything new. But is He calling you to bring application or illumination of a biblical principle into somebody's life? Does it sound like God? Is it the heart of God? Is it, is it biblical? Now all of this talk about not quenching the work of the Holy Spirit and all of this talk of God working prophetically through our lives to minister to one another... Some say, there's various positions on this, right, in the Christian faith. Some say, well, I'm, I'm closed to this. And there are those that are cessationists that believe that, that this kind of work of the Holy Spirit ceased at the end of the first century, at the end of the apostolic age. Some would say, no, I'm not closed, I'm open. But there's different kinds of, of ways to be open. Some would say, well, I'm open to the prophetic work of the Holy Spirit. I'm open to the, the Holy Spirit working in ways that make me uncomfortable. But I'm, I'm open but cautious, open but wary. Others, I would say, are not open but cautious. They're open and reckless, right? Open and careless. And I certainly don't want us to be open and reckless with the work of the Holy Spirit, but I also really don't want us to be open and cautious. Here's, here's what I would say, church. Let's be open and ready. Now, the Scriptures clearly tell us we need to test every prophetic work. We need to test things that, that are claiming to be from the Holy Spirit. So, we need to be mindful and respectful. We need to be aware. But let's be open and let's be ready. Let's be ready for God to be God, for the Spirit to be the Spirit, for His fire to burn. If, 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 if we are the fuel and we give Him plenty of space, we give Him plenty of oxygen, He's going to burn and He's going to have His way and have His will with us. Now again, some of you say, well, I can't always do this. I can't always give space to the Spirit. Either A, because I don't even know what that means, I'm, 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 I'm inexperienced, or B, I'm just uncomfortable, and I don't like this stuff you're talking about. Or C, my flesh is just really strong, and there's a lot of times where I don't want to follow the Holy Spirit. I just follow my own heart. And so what's our reminder? What's our encouragement this morning? Coming back to this again and again. How are we going to do this always? He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will guide you. He will give you strength and wisdom. He will take you 
every step of the way, and it may be baby steps. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will surely give you the grace to seek, to follow, to listen, to be led, and to be filled by the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity that dwells in our hearts. And then in verse 25, Paul's final closing section, always, I summarize it this way, always rely on one another. He says in closing, brothers and sisters, we've learned that that, that, work there in, that word there in the Greek, translated by the ESV brothers, is a more general term that means siblings, siblings in Christ. Paul says, pray for us. See, Paul, Silas, and Timothy know how vital prayer is to the Christian life. They pray for the leaders of the churches they planted. They're praying for the Christians, and they're saying, hey, pray for us too. We're not too proud to ask for your prayers. They are relying on the Christians in other cities to pray and sustain and uphold their ministry. And then they give them this, this very particular exhortation in verse 26. Greet one another. Greet the other brothers and sisters of the faith with a holy kiss. And there are actually several letters in the New Testament that end with the, the call to, to greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, most scholars would say that the, the idea of a kiss was a cultural greeting in the first century. And, and I don't believe that this requires us to kiss one another, although there's nothing wrong with that. I think it could be a perfectly pure and holy greeting of affection. But I do believe what we are required to do as fellow Christians is to greet one another with affection. There should be affection when we see our brothers and sisters in Christ. I, I, I welled up in tears when I saw Emma this morning. I haven't seen her for so long. I was overjoyed. I, I maybe cracked a rib when I hugged her. I was so glad to see her. We should show physical affection in the name of Jesus. Now, of course, in our culture, a hug is more common than a kiss. But we're not talking about any old hug. It's a holy kiss that I'm going to say that's a holy hug. Right? This is, this is saying something. It means something to greet one another, to be happy to see one another, to encourage one another, to bless one another. Not just, hey, what's up? But, hey, what's up, brother? How are you? We're connected because of our faith in Christ. And so he says in verse 25, pray for us. He says in 26, greet one another with holy affection. And then in verse 27, he says this strong word, I put you under oath. Paul's saying, I charge you before the Lord God that you make sure to read this letter to everyone in the church. Now here's the thing. They didn't have the Bible on their pocket computer, right? They didn't even have the Bible on, on a shelf in their home. If, if the early Christians wanted to hear the word of God, whether it was the Old Testament or whether it was the letters of, of the apostles and the gospel accounts that were beginning to circulate and beginning to take on the same authority as the Old Testament, if they wanted to hear that, they had to go to the synagogue, they had to go to the gathering of Christians for somebody that had an Old Testament manuscript, somebody that had a copy of a letter, and they had to audibly read it and listen to it. And Paul is saying, read and study and hear the word of God together. In another letter, Paul instructs, his letter, he says, pass my letter to the other city and, and get their letter and, and read it as well. See, it's vital if we're going to grow together as the family of God, that we're in prayer together, that we're affectionate with one another, and that we spend time together in the Word. And there's something about, isn't there, that, that gathering of believers, whether it's here on Sunday in your small group, whether it's just one-on-one -on -one over coffee, when the Word of God is read out loud together and you're proclaiming to one another and to the angels and to anybody else that can hear you, we believe in this and we need this. And so Paul 
puts them under oath. Read the Word of God together and be encouraged. Now, he's already sort of given the closing benediction in verses 23 and 24, but he can't help himself again in 28. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The amazing grace of God, the abundant favor of God that's undeserved, His love and His forgiveness and His grace and the work of the Holy Spirit. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. May God's grace fill you. May God's grace carry you. He exhorts these Christians. And so he lays out in the ending chapter of this letter sort of a template for the Christian life. And the call for us is to always do good. That means we reject evil. That means we don't return Wickedness for wickedness, we bless even when others curse. We walk in kindness and in love. We always do good to one another and to everyone. Always rejoice, even in hard times. And there are some of you here this morning that I know are going through hard times. And the Bible says there's a way to find joy. There's a way for you to rejoice even in the midst of hard times and suffering because your joy comes in Christ. And we're to always pray. That means always be in God's presence. Always keep the line of communication open at all times. And we're to always be thankful. It is so easy to complain. It is so easy to look at only what you don't have and to be critical and to be jealous of other people. But the call is to be a people that are full of thankfulness because God has given us an abundance. Many of us, He's given us an abundance in this physical world, but He's surely given us an abundance in the spiritual world and in eternity. Always do good and rejoice and pray and be thankful and always make room for the Spirit. Living Hope, I pray that we can grow in this together in following and listening and responding to the Holy Spirit. And then lastly, the call is to always rely on one another, to pray for one another, to pray together, to show love and affection for one another, to study the Word of God together and obey the Word of God together. And you say again, how am I going to do all this? How are we going to do all this? There's no way. There's no way we can accomplish all those things. Maybe we can do it one out of ten times. Maybe we can have a couple of good days every week, but always, always do this? How are we going to do this? And our response comes in verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will surely do it. And so put your faith, put your faith in your Savior. Put your faith in the gospel and the good news that He was born, He lived, He died, He rose again, and He is returning Put your faith in the gospel of Christ, not the gospel of hard work or the gospel of things working out. The gospel of Christ. Put our faith in the one who is faithful. Because listen, if you have been called by God and if you have heard his voice, and you may not even be fully committed to Christ yet, some of you are still figuring out if you're going to answer the call, if you're going to respond and trust in Christ. But if he has called you, If He has started you on this journey, make no mistake about it. He is faithful and He will finish. He will surely do it. He doesn't call anyone to follow Him. And I'm I'm not talking about like the general gospel call. I'm talking about the eternal call of the Holy Spirit that says, You belong to me. Come be a part of my family. Come follow me. Come walk with me. Give yourself to me. He who calls you is faithful and He will surely do it. And you... If you're anything like me, will not always be faithful. You, if you're anything like me, will not always be interested in the Lord God. And you may not always have what it takes. And you may not always have the ability or the desire to work hard. But God is always faithful. He always finishes what He started. And the promise is that He will sanctify you completely 
through the work of Jesus Christ. That means you will be blameless. He will guard you and he will keep you by his Holy Spirit. The one who dwells in you will guard you until the day of Christ's return. He will uphold both your body and your soul. He will keep you blameless in Jesus Christ. He will surely do it. I am sure. I am sure of it. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Amen? Man, the worship team's going to come. We're going to sing this old hymn, praising God for his faithfulness. Praising God that he is faithful when we are faithless. Praising God that he is steady when we are wobbly. Praising God that he never forgets when our memory is so short. And so let's stand together and worship. Let's stand together and, and sing these promises to one another and proclaim with thankfulness, with joy, with prayerfulness who God is and what he has done. Father, come now and fill this room with your presence. Fill us with your peace and your joy. And we ask that the God of peace, the God who has brought us peace in Christ, we ask that you would sanctify us completely. That you would keep us blameless. Our whole spirit, our whole soul, our whole body, God, would you keep us blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we proclaim today that you are faithful. You've called us and you're faithful. God, you will surely do it. And so we put our hope and our trust in you. Hear our worship. Hear us, Father.